I'm Paul Fotenauer, and welcome to Frontiers, where we showcase UC Davis research that helps us understand and live in a changing world. With 1.4 billion followers, Islam is the second largest religion in the world, and it's the fastest growing. Current events across the Muslim world often puzzle Westerners who don't understand their culture, religion, or laws. Today, we're going to talk to two UC Davis scholars who will offer their insights. Madhavi Sunder of the UC Davis School of Law studies the territory where law meets culture. In 2006, she was named a Carnegie Scholar. She's using the award to write a book about how Muslim women around the world are working to reform their religion. She's building on landmark scholarship in which she calls for the law to accommodate reform from within religion and other organizations. Middle East historian Keith David Wattenpah is an expert on modern Islam, human rights, and peace. He has written extensively and spoken on campuses around the country on issues raised by the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of Iraq. In particular, Professor Wattenpah addresses the challenges facing Middle Eastern intellectuals and university professionals. He is a frequent visitor to the Middle East, especially Iraq. In June 2003, Professor Wattenpah led the first and only independent assessment of how the war affected Baghdad's libraries, research centers, and universities. Welcome, both of you, to Thank Frontiers. You, Thank Thanks you. for having us. First question, uh, Professor Wattenpah, in your new book, uh, Being Modern in the Middle East, you address the, the central issue of Arabs adapting to the modern world. What is that central issue? The central question is how to be both modern and an Arab, you know, how to achieve the objective category of modern without losing the subjective category of the identity of Arab. And what my book shows and what my research shows is this is not necessarily uh, an easy process of bringing these two things together. Nevertheless, what I'm trying to show is that this is a discussion occurring within the Arab countries, within Muslim countries, about how to become modern without at the same time losing a connection with the past and what, what makes people have an attachment to place and self and so on. Well, let me ask you this, Professor Sunder. What are some of the issues in human rights that reformers are dealing with? Sure. Well, just to even follow up on what Keith is saying, uh, in this whole issue to reconcile modernity, democracy, freedom, and equality, these universal principles uh, that are often historically uh, equated with the West, but now the idea is how do we reconcile them in uh, Muslim communities? We're seeing one of the most important questions revolving around constitutional law. Both Iraq and Afghanistan now have new constitutions that both simultaneously proclaim the countries to be Islamic republics with Islamic law being supreme, yet at the same time, they also embrace human rights law, democracy, freedom, and even equality between the sexes. So the um, one of the most important areas of reform going forward will focus on how can we now reconcile these two principles that are given equal weight in these constitutions. So reform around constitutional law, reform around family law. Uh, there's been a wonderful uh, progressive activity in Morocco, and uh, many folks are going to be looking at the new Moroccan family law, which is premised on Islamic law, uh, to uh, see how we might be able to reform family law in Malaysia and elsewhere. And there's also um, much, uh, not just looking at civil law, but at criminal law itself. Are these laws, these constitutional laws, being embraced in the Arab world? Well, sure. Uh, I mean, the, the Iraqi constitution was passed by popular referendum. So uh, the, the majority of the people, uh, and, and I think often when you look at polls uh, around the Muslim world, and even at Mus looking at Muslim communities living within the West, 
the vast majority of Muslims are interested in being modern, but also not uh, uh, abandoning their faith. So this issue of reconciliation that Keith is also mentioning is really the central issue, and it's, it's uh, got popular appeal. Tell me how this affects Islamic religion. Well, I have argued that uh, it affects our very understanding of not just Islamic religion, but religion itself. Going back to the Enlightenment, uh, the Western understanding of religion is uh, something that we don't, we don't think of religion as embodying democracy, as embodying freedom of speech. Religion is handed down to us from above. It's imposed. Uh, the leaders uh, tell us what the religion means. But what we're seeing with respect to people's movements, and I argue in, in particular women's movements around the world, is uh, that women are questioning this conception, this age-old conception of religion, and saying, no, religion uh, is something that we can engage in democratically. We can question certain tenets. We can debate about interpretation. So the very concept of religion itself is really uh, being debated now, and I, and I argue being fundamentally changed. Give me some examples of what women are doing to try to bring these reforms. Um, well, in uh, Morocco, I, I mentioned uh, there is a new family law dated uh, 2004. Uh, this family law, there was um, more than a decade-long struggle by women's groups in this country to challenge uh, half-century-old family law that had uh, been put into place in the 1950s in that country that was quite... Uh, <clears throat> regressive with respect to women's rights. So this uh, law was premised on archaic interpretations of Islamic law. So some examples there. Women uh, inherited half as much as men in the family. There was an express statement in the law that men uh, would uh, be the ruling authority within the household. It was very easy for men to obtain divorces uh, very quickly and simply from their wife without having responsibility for uh, taking care of them. So these laws were challenged in more than a decade-long struggle by women's groups. This was a grassroots movement, and in 2004 the law was reformed. It's quite progressive now, uh, and, uh, and it was reformed in uh, uh, the name of Islam. It's not a secular law in the sense that we might think of just a, a uniform civil code, uh, but in fact says that Islamic law supports equality between the sexes in the family. Islamic law uh, supports uh, an equal inheritance rights for uh, women and men. So this was a really important uh, movement, and in other countries such as Malaysia and Iraq, uh, reformers are looking to see how we may be able to learn from the lessons in Morocco and their code. Is it could it be it could it be a model code? Now, you're an expert in Islamic religion. Is this good for that religion? It depends on who you'd ask, of course. Uh, <laughs> the but what's important to emphasize is this this is an ongoing debate with about that's been going on for really the last 200 years within within the muslim world um, the first constitution in an islamic country was the ottoman constitution of 1876 that was restored in 1908 um, all the all middle eastern countries most islamic countries have a constitution that in many ways are are sort of drawn from sort of western notions of constitutionalism um, mixed with local traditions and local ideas about family and, and so on. My sense is that is that right now we're seeing a, a, a real tension developing within Islamic societies over those who grasp reform wholeheartedly and those who are very worried about reform. And that ultimately those who are arguing for reform uh, 
are not just threatening the sort of the the the, uh, the unique and dominant interpretations of Islam, but also the dominant cultures and the dominant political structures in these countries. So it's a political struggle, it's a cultural struggle, and it's a religious struggle. But ultimately, uh, I see a great deal of energy <coughs> emerging in the Muslim world in this direction. And I, I, I think there's there's a concern on the part of the Westerners that there should be the separation of church and the mosque or mm-hmm. church and state. Uh, is that the way Muslims feel? Well. The, the, the standard interpretation of both even Christianity and Islam is that there shouldn't necessarily be a separation between these two, but it's only secular modernity which has established this disconnection between, between the religious and the secular within the modern world. Um, my sense is that there are many in the Muslim world who would like to see secular republics emerge, that would want to see a separation of church and state, mosque and state, and so on. And many of these are drawn from the region's ethnic and religious minorities. But there are others who, just like in the United States, would want to see a much bigger role for religious life in public life. And I think that, that this is a tension that, that is being worked out. But just like we see in our own country... Uh, a conflict between these ideas, that same sort of conflict seems to be inherent to any democratic society. Uh, so I would imagine in, in the future these debates will continue, they're important to watch, but I, like uh, Dr. Sunder, agree that it's very important for those of us who see a value in equality, in protecting the rights of minorities and so on, to support activist groups and intellectuals and so on in developing countries, not just Muslim countries and Arab countries, but around the world, who want to bring these ideas into fruition. And in many ways, as they reform their societies, other things happen at the same time. Increase in education for women, for example. Uh, decrease in sectarian and communal violence. These are sorts of things which, which lead to progress, which lead to social empowerment, which lead to creating stable, secure states. Professor Sunder, are these reformers risking their lives? Absolutely, Absolutely. they're risking their lives. We read tragic cases every day. Women uh, who were involved in uh, drafting the Iraqi constitution were shot and killed. Uh, And often um, they are um, really in danger because there's this notion that they're working with the West and against Islam. And this idea of uh, being uh, foreign, uh, that that modern ideas and democratic ideas or egalitarian ideas are foreign, uh, often works against reform. And uh, so, so they are simultaneously fighting on many different fronts. But these Islamic principles have been held by the members of that faith very strongly for years. If these reformers feel there needs to be changes, why don't they just leave the religion and start their own? That's absolutely what I'm uh, actually arguing is what most people, you know, whether you're Islamic or Christian or or, uh, Western uh, in any way, don't really want to do in real life. It's not a very practical option to, I mean, you, you might have an option to join the Elks Club or and, and or quit and leave if you disagree with their policies, but when you're talking about your religious community, your cultural community, your national home, uh, these are not communities that people either practically can leave, but more importantly, uh, they don't want to. These are uh, cultures and religions and faiths uh, that are dear to people, and so there's an important uh, statement that these reformers are making saying that we don't have to choose one or the other and this old approach of choosing freedom outside of your religion uh, is no longer acceptable in the 21st century we want to have both we want to have 
democracy and equality, but within the communities that are dear to us. Are the successes coming fast enough? No, frankly. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that you, in the, especially in the Arab East, we have uh, old-fashioned authoritarian regimes who are now in many ways buttressing themselves by drawing into their sort of... Uh, 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 a nexus of matrix of power, Islamic Islamic rule. So, yes. so the continuous suppression of women in a place like authoritarian Egypt is not based on on sort of uh, secular rules. It's now being based on Muslim ideas and Muslim rules, and it's being justified along those lines. In Iraq, for example, uh, what we're seeing is a, a support of a traditional elite against a reforming population based on the notion of Islamic practice. And as an Islamic scholar, I find it very hard to sometimes understand uh, where the Islam is in that, in that equation of power, um, where Islam as a, as a religion is often one that, that demands that you take care of the poor, that you care for orphans, that you think about society as a whole and not necessarily side um, for the strong against the weak. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and also um, in terms of the rise of this uh, Islamic elite in Iraq, and I think Keith alluded to this earlier, we in the West play a part in that because um, we have notions that, okay, they have a new constitution, they are now a fledgling democracy, let the people choose, let the leaders choose, uh, and, uh, and our, what should be our role? Should we just stay out and let them choose? But often what we really end up doing is bolstering the views of the elite as a, uh, and, 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 and strengthening their claims against the claims of reformers because we think that, well, often we just think the reformers don't exist. We think women don't have a voice and that's this is, different. This is a long-term process. This is something that's been part of American foreign policy for a long time, which is that we value stability over reform. And for a brief period of time, we had a government that said, oh, we want to value reform over stability, but that policy was very poorly formulated and poorly implemented. And so in many ways, we're moving back Americans in their relationship with the with the Muslim world are moving back towards the direction of stability over reform. But I think a very important thing to, to bring up in this is that is that if we look at a place like Iran, where reform is absolutely needed and and really has a great potential for good, the moment the American government says we're in support of the reformers, they lose all authority within society. So we have to play a very, this is a, this is a very careful process we have to be engaged in, where if we support people and say, this is in America's interest that you reform, they lose. But we need to be able to support them in ways they want to be supported. Well, let me ask you about that. From a Western perspective, uh, what difference does it make if these reforms hold? Well, clearly, these, these states are now unstable in many regards. These non-reform states are unstable. They're, uh, they're a threat to, to peace and to both local peace and, and, and international peace because they, they, these states are often are so authoritarian they create no middle ground for political dispute within them. So it's either revolution or it's oppression. And, you know, as Americans, I've always liked that middle that middle part, which is between revolution and oppression, where politics and debate and so on can happen, people can move forward together. So for us, we want to help these countries develop in a way that allows politics to exist, but those politics don't lead to revolution and violent overthrow, because that's not, you know, it cuts up our oil supply, it requires us to, to commit men, materiel, and so on to the region, and it, um, overall, we lose our 
we lose prestige. And uh, I think that we're, we have to be on the side of reform or we're, go- we're going to continue to have the, the poor relationship with the region that, that we have now. How have the, the, the terrorist attacks since September 11 affected your work? Well, you know, I was just thinking, too, an interesting example of this, uh, how does it affect the West when uh, reforms work or when internal reformers uh, have more of a say. One of the strategies in London now, uh, uh, after the terrorist attacks of last summer, is to work with the Muslim community, fighting Mm -hmm. extremism together. And uh, really, it's a, 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 a partnership between the British government and authorities and moderate Muslims, modern Muslims, and in particular, there's a strategy to engage Muslim women in uh, supporting these moderate claims uh, against the rise of fundamentalism and, or and, and extremism there. So uh, it affects us in these very concrete ways with respect to terrorism. But uh, in terms of, uh, you know, September 11 for me really uh, made this my understanding of the relationship between law and religion much more concrete. A week before 9-11, I was talking with a constitutional law colleague of mine about a, a documentary about the Taliban in Afghanistan and, and just how oppressive uh, this regime was, and, and especially with respect to the rights of women. And my constitutional law colleague and friend, uh, like many lawyers in the United States, replied, well, that's their religion. There's nothing we can do about it. That's, that's the religion. We have to stay out. We just have to accept it. Um, that regime committed some of the most uh, heinous atrocities against its people and, and women for uh, five years or more without the international community, through human rights law, being able to do anything. Two months after 9-11, war essentially put an end to that regime, finally. So I asked myself, and I asked uh, the legal community in my subsequent articles, what is it about religion that's, created, that, that's now this shibboleth? It's, some, it's the area that law cannot enter, that rights cannot enter. We can't have reason. We don't, have, uh, we don't question this area. So September 11 really made it starkly clear to me. War ended the Taliban, but law was helpless. Mm-hmm. Briefly, how has it affected you? Well, it, if it's affected me because I no longer have to explain why the Middle East is important for people to understand and think about. And also that, that you know, where I would rather it not, had not it happened, um, it brought a certain focus to the American public that what's happening over there affects us here. And that there's a role for language study, for learning the history and the culture and society of these regions that is of vital importance to us in the here and now. Well, this has been a fascinating topic, and I appreciate both of you uh, appearing on Frontiers. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who joined us for today's discussion. You can learn more about this subject by visiting our website at frontiers.ucdavis.edu. The 9-11 attacks brought sweeping changes in airline security. But after reinforcing cockpit doors and putting armed air marshals on flights, security officials and airlines now have a new challenge. How to stop explosives or dangerous chemicals from being smuggled onto aircraft, disguised as harmless liquids or gels. And passengers are wondering if and when they can bring a bottle of water, a tube of toothpaste, or moisturizing cream from home. Now, technology has some answers. And from an unexpected direction, the world of high-end wine. Matt Augustine is a UC Davis professor of chemistry who works on nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, a technique for looking at the chemical composition of fluids without touching them. In 2002, Augustine and his students built a machine to scan bottles of expensive wine for spoilage without opening them. 
That machine has since gone into commercial use. He says the same technique could be used for checking passenger items for explosives. Matt, welcome to Frontiers. Thank you for inviting me, Paul. Matt, first question. We've heard a lot about it, but what is it? And that's magnetic resonance. Well, magnetic resonance is a technique that uses the absorption of radio frequency waves in a magnetic field to determine the identity of a chemical compound. So, for example, the response that you would measure would be able to tell you the difference between the major components in wine. You would get one response for water, a different response for the ethyl alcohol, and if the wine is bad, you would get a third response for the major spoilage contaminants, acetic acid or acetaldehyde. So was there enough spoilage problems in the wine industry where they said, Matt, come up with something? Oh, no, uh, absolutely not. I, I got into this particular project. Uh, it was really an accident. One of my graduate students was doing a project that involved laser spectroscopy, the absorption and emission of light to understand chemical structure. And she was really bored with that experiment and wanted to do something with wine. And I figured since we're at UC Davis, why not try something with wine? But the difference is, is that there were a number of different problems that were out there that I really didn't know about or really have the ex expertise to actually apply my set of tools to those problems. And so eventually we, we stumbled upon a problem that was uh, the spoilage of wine due to leaky corks. So it sounds like now that you have ability to detect certain chemical structures. And this is where it comes into play with detecting uh, chemicals that can be used to develop bombs. Indeed, indeed. Chemicals that can be used to develop bombs that one might take with them on an airplane. So, for example, the, the, the real problem that we study in wine, if you want to think about it from an experimentalist perspective, is basically you have a big background signal, water, ethyl alcohol, and wine, and you want to study a very, very small amount of some spoilage contaminant. Less than a percent of that material is acetic acid or acetaldehyde. In the case of liquids explosives, you have similarities. The similarities are the full bottle of expensive wine is sealed and you can't open it. The person, yourself, say you get onto a plane and you have a bottle of Gatorade, we'd like to know, is that bottle really Gatorade or is it gasoline or something explosive? The basic idea is the same. You use the method that we've developed for wines to look at the sealed bottle of Gatorade in this example to determine whether or not the sample is legal or illegal. Expensive equipment? Lots of equipment needed at airports to do that? Well, it depends. There's two answers, two ways to answer that, that question. Yes, expensive equipment. Yes, a lot of equipment compared to, say, for example, uh, an iPod, right? But not a lot of equipment in comparison to the type of instrumentation that you would need to, say, do full-body magnetic resonance imaging, to take a picture of your body using a similar technique. So how long would it take to, to scan a, a bottle of water, or even a bottle of wine for that matter? Currently, we can detect oxidation contaminants in a fine bottle of wine in about seven and a half minutes. But that's one percent of the volume of the wine. In the case where you have explosives, if you really want to do damage to an airplane, you're going to need a large volume, typically, of some sort of flammable compound. That's typically going to be a pure compound, not a 1% of a compound in a wine bottle. This pure compound is going to be easy for us to, to detect. Could, I imagine less than a minute. Could this system have been successful by terrorists to pull this off? Well, the system, the, the, the plot that the terrorists actually had 
to my understanding was that they had um, flammable compounds that they were going to mix together to make a very explosive solid substance. And that solid substance they were going to then detonate with an electrical discharge from a cellular telephone. Now, in order for most solid substances that are explosives to actually be explosive, they have to be dry. And it takes time for compounds to dry. Whether or not this particular explosive would have been dry by the time they left um, Heathrow and arrived at JFK or wherever in the United States, I, I, I don't know. So roughly, how long does it take for these liquids to come into a solid? Does it take hours? Well, it take? depends on the type of chemistry. This particular chemistry would probably be roughly, you know, minutes. Ingenious idea? Um, actually, it turns out um, when this story was released, my un one of the undergraduates in my lab said that uh, he actually has made the explosive before. And, uh, well, he has sort of a hobby of making his own fireworks at the 4th of July, and he says it's trivial. And it is trivial. And I've talked to people um, at Homeland's uh, at Homeland Security that have mentioned that this is an easy type of chemistry to accomplish. You need acetone, which you can get from fingernail polish. You can get ethanol from gasoline if you need that. You can get hydrogen peroxide at the grocery store. The different building block substances are commercially available. And how do you trigger it? In this case, as I mentioned before, you would have to use an electric discharge, and that's what the terrorists were planning on doing, at least to my understanding, and that electrical discharge was going to come from a cellular telephone. Do you think they would have been successful? I doubt they would have been successful, but that really isn't the point. I mean, terrorism is successful, really, if people are afraid. And unfortunately, that's the case here. Have you been in contact, or has Homeland Security been in contact with you or the FBI about this process? Not directly. It turns out that one of my partners in this wine company that I'm involved with uh, testified in front of the 9-11 Commission. And he's actually involved, he's a Homeland Security consultant, and he's been in touch with these people in, in Homeland Security, FBI, and Defense. Would it take uh, airport scanners a, a lot of uh, understanding of how these machines work in order to catch an explosive, a liquid explosive. You might imagine at the outset, in the case of the type of equipment that I'm describing, if you've ever had a magnetic resonance image taken at a hospital, for example, there are certain technicians that are experts in how to operate that equipment. The same is true in my laboratory here at UC Davis. Um, my graduate students are well trained in the aspect, in the various aspects, and how to run the instrumentation. And you might imagine that they would be experts and uniquely qualified. Now, to answer your question, at the wine scanning company, I've trained essentially a computer technician to run the instrument. He doesn't know anything about the physics or the quantum mechanics behind the magnetic resonance method. What he does know is essentially red light, green light. When he sees a certain response, he knows the wines are bad. When he sees another response, he kn or if he doesn't see that response, he knows the wine is good. And that's the same sort of level of expertise I believe that they have at the airports right now where they look at bombs with the swipe method. So, Matt, you think that this is realistic, that we could see these kinds of machines at airports in the near future? Absolutely. Because, well, for a couple of different reasons. One is it's the only analytical method that I currently know of that can give you the chemical makeup of a particular substance if it's in a closed sealed container. For example, if you shine a laser or light on a sealed container, that's going to, that, the, the light, you're going to have difficulty getting the light out of the container. Um, 
Do I think that it can be implemented at airports? Absolutely, because uh, right now, as I said, we can look at a wine bottle in seven and a half minutes, and that's a 1% of the substance type level. Here we're talking about pure substances, and I believe we can get it less than three minutes, maybe even a minute. Matt, this has been fascinating. Appreciate your time. Thank you for appearing on Frontiers. Thank you very much for the invitation. And thanks to all of you who joined us for today's discussion. You can learn more about this subject by visiting our website at frontiers.ucdavis.edu.